Remember this, we must not forget that our saving faith is precious and valuable. We must be diligent to determine and know sound doctrine. We must preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember this, fake doctrine promises a refreshing reign of hope, but it brings dryness. Fake doctrine promises spiritual life, but it only brings death. Fake doctrine promises spiritual fruit, but only delivers emptiness. Remember this, the world has subtle and clever ways to try to confuse and discourage you. So keep yourself ready in God's love and pray for the Holy Spirit to build you up. Have mercy and compassion on those polluted by sin. Remember this, be ready to discern truth from almost truth. Be ready for Christ's return. Be ready to contend for the faith. We continue our study this morning in the book of Jude. We've, uh, we've been in the book for a few weeks. We've got a couple more weeks to be in the book after this morning. We're taking our time because there's a lot going on in the book of Jude. But as we take our time among the trees, let's not lose sight of the forest. That the central thrust, the central um, driving encouragement in the book of Jude for believers is found in verse two. In Jude's purpose statement for writing his book, his appeal that we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we've shared before when we were looking at the first week of our study, that word contend there is a word that is, is uniquely strong. It's the strongest word for for opposing argument. It's the strongest word to, to fight for something found in the entire New Testament, used only here in the New Testament, and as far as we know, used only here in all of first century Greek writing. It's an extraordinarily strong word. We are to fight tooth and nail for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. By the time Jude was led of the Holy Spirit to write this epistle in probably the late AD 60s, the first century church already had infiltrating it, worming and weaseling and wolfing their way into the church were those who would teach an almost gospel that might have some of the buzzwords and some of the behaviors of authentic faith but was a self-serving, self-aggrandizing, self-building false message. And they were already starting to make their way in as early as the AD 60s. And it certainly remains the case in the 21st century that almost true Christianity will be thrown on like a costume by those who would desire to be perceived as insiders within the boundaries of the faith and most alarmingly within the boundaries of a given local church. For you and me, McGregor Baptist Church, we must be on guard against these apostates, clouds without water, trees without fruit, hidden reefs, waiting to wreck the hull from just below the surface. 
We've already seen in the book of Jude up to this point a couple of behavioral characteristics that are the, are the tells, that are the slight tears in the sheep costume that let the real wolf below peek through. They reject authority. Verse eight, they, they blaspheme the holy ones. Verse eight, we already have seen glimpses of what's coming for them. In verse three, I mean, pardon me, four, we are told that they are long ago designated for condemnation because a God whose grace and mercy are providential, well, so is his judgment and his justice, and they will be condemned. We are told at the end of verse 13 from the passage we studied last week that, that they are, they are um, going to find themselves in the gloom of utter darkness which has been reserved forever. We are to contend against them. We are to be wary of them. And in verses 14 through 16, we are to anticipate the judgment that is coming. Jude, verses 14 through 16. But also about these, and these here are those apostates that he has described with that series of rapid fire metaphors in the previous paragraph. The clouds without water, the trees without fruit, the wild waves, the wandering stars, the hidden reefs. These, it is about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, quote, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The coming Judgment. The book of Jude begins now to speak explicitly of the coming judgment. And, and certainly by extended application, it is the coming judgment on all the world. And we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. But by, by its fo uh, focused and specific application in context, he's talking about the judgment on these, these false believers who would seek to infiltrate the, the kingdom and more pointedly the church and, and do harm by the introduction of almost true teaching for their own selfish agenda. Let's have a look. Roman numeral one, the promise of his judgment. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, right out of the gate, letter A, we see a surprising source. A surprising source. We, we didn't necessarily anticipate hearing from Enoch. Now, Enoch appears in the book of Genesis. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 21, Enoch appears in the genealogy, linking from Adam down to Noah. He's there. And, and in that 
couple of three verses, 521 and following, I think the paragraph goes down to 525, we learn one significant thing about Enoch, and that is he never died. Enoch is uh, one who the Bible says that one day he simply was not, for God took him. Seems to be the case that one day Enoch, who, who walked with God, went for a walk with God from which he just never came home. And so that's what we know about Enoch from the book of Genesis. Didn't necessarily expect to hear this prophecy. Another reason it's sort of an unlikely source or a surprising source is here it appears that Jude is quoting this quote from a, a book that is in fact not scripture. And that's a little bit surprising because the New Testament is full of quotations from the Old Testament scripture. And you won't find this quote from Enoch in the Old Testament scripture. In fact, it appears to come from the book of 1st Enoch, which is not scriptural. Now, we know that Enoch made this prophecy because under the leadership of God the Holy Spirit, Jude said he did. And so the underlying literary source doesn't have to be scripture for Jude to tell us something true that happened. And if you get heartburn about a, a New Testament passage quoting an unbiblical or non-biblical source, um, the Apostle Paul, in his majestic Acts 17 sermon to the philosophers of Athens, the, the Mars Hill sermon, if you're a, an Acts nerd and you know the passage, in that message, Paul quotes at least two, possibly as many as four, classical Greek poets. Doesn't mean the poetry of those poets was scripture. It just means that there were useful ideas and turns of phrase. And once Paul quoted them in his message, and even more so once Luke picked it up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and incorporated it into the text of our book of Acts, well, we know it to be an, an accurate and an artful quote. <clears throat> Here we know Enoch said this. By whatever means God got it to the mind and heart of Jude, once Jude put it in a book that was accepted by the early church as a book of the Bible, it's scripture to us. And that being true, here's something for you, for you uh, Bible trivia contest winners, all right? And you can either answer this question right or give people a little while to forget this message and make it a question because this is a good one. The first prophecy in Scripture... The oldest prophecy we have in scripture is the prophecy of the coming of the seed of a woman in Genesis 3.15. That's scripture's first prophecy. When the, when the serpent has, has tempted Adam and Eve and they have fallen, God says to the, to the serpent that uh, the seed of a woman, that one descended from a woman, will one day crush the head of the serpent. It's the first ever prophecy in the Bible. It's the first prophecy of the first coming and death of Jesus. But when Enoch prophesied this prophecy, we don't learn about it till the book of Jude, but Enoch said it in his lifetime. It's the oldest prophecy we have that comes out of the mouth of a person. The oldest human spoken prophecy on earth is the prophecy of Enoch 
of the coming of the Lord in judgment. See, you might not have known that if you hadn't come to church today. And now you do. It's an unlikely source, but it is a certain truth. Jesus is returning. The Lord is coming back in judgment. It, that judgment is certain. That judgment will be ruthlessly and meticulously just. And that judgment is coming. Which leads us to Roman numeral two. The people at his judgment. Continuing verse 14 into the quote now. Behold, the Lord comes. His second coming is as certain as his first coming was. He's coming again. He's coming back in just the same way he left. Don't miss that. It's in Acts chapter one when Jesus ascends. He came out of the grave a, a once again alive, though glorified human being. The resurrection was a physical event, not a metaphysical event. The body of Jesus that went into the grave came out in glorified, eternally living form as the first ever resurrection body. He came out of the grave alive. And some days later, as told in the uh, book of Acts chapter one, he gathered with his followers on the slopes of the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem. And he, uh, he reiterated to them one more time the outline of the Great Commission. You're going to be my witnesses, he said, in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. And then while they were there, he took off. He didn't slowly fade from view. He didn't say, look over there. And when they looked back, there was a puff of smoke and he was gone. He up and pulled a Superman right in front of them. And what did they do? I'll tell you what they did. They did what you'd have done. So much so that the book of Luke, I mean the book of Acts tells us, a couple of men dressed in white, which is angels, appeared and said, why are you standing there gazing into the sky? Implication being, that's not what he told you to do. This same Jesus that was taken away from you will return in the same way you saw him leave. And when he comes back, folks, it's not gonna be an idea. It's not a metaphor. It's not a, the triumph of ideological thought. There is coming the literal, physical, visible, powerful, undeniable return of the resurrected God-man, Jesus Christ, to earth. And when he comes, he's coming to judge and to reign. So the first person present in his judgment is the Lord himself. But Jude, as he is fond of doing, gives us yet another of his sort of enigmatic little head-scratching phrases when he says he comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. Well, who are they? It's a fair question. And um, the answer to the question does not necessarily detract or distract from the core issue of contending for the faith or the issue at hand here, the coming of the Lord in judgment. But it does bear examination because it's there. So he comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. That could mean, let her be, believers. It could be believers. 
1 Thessalonians 4, describing this, this same moment of the Lord's glorious coming, says that, uh, verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. When the Lord returns, he's bringing with him those believers who have died and gone to be with him. Now that, that's worth a small rabbit chase here, so I'll, 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 I'll take it on for a minute. When those who are in Christ die today, they go to be with Jesus, but they do not go to the ultimate heaven as it will one day be revealed. That ultimate new Jerusalem that will one day be revealed has yet to be revealed. They also do not receive their resurrection bodies, though they, they, are, they are distinctly themselves and they are distinctly present with Christ. They are absent from the body, they are present with the Lord. They await the resurrection when they get their resurrection bodies back. Because later that same paragraph of 1 Thessalonians says, the dead in Christ will rise. So the question is, which is it, Brother Russell? Are they coming down with Jesus or coming up from the earth? And the answer is yes. Because they will be united with him in the air. They will gain at that point their eternal resurrected bodies. You and I who know Jesus will physically dwell forever in a very real, though breathtakingly spectacular, capital city of the universe, then new created, New Jerusalem, the ultimate realization of heaven. It's going to be good, and we're going to be really, really presently there. Heaven is not a bunch of uh, chubby little innocuous angels riding clouds and strumming harps. That ain't heaven. At any rate, he could mean here those saints that are coming back with Jesus when he comes to judge and to reign. Or given that in the book of Jude, he has referred multiple times now to angels, he could have in mind angels. Because Matthew chapter 25, 31, among other verses, tells us that angels will be present when he returns to judge. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So it could be that he's talking about angels as well. Either way, when he comes back, to certainly judge in justice and righteousness. He's not coming alone. Roman numeral three, the purpose of his judgment. In verse 15, we know why he's coming back. He's coming back to execute judgment. To execute judgment. And, and four times in this, in this one sentence, in this one verse, four times he uses the term ungodly. He, he beats that word all the way through this sentence. But before he gets to the ungodly, he says to execute judgment on all. He's coming back to judge the world. And this is not a Bible study on the different phases and forms of that judgment, but be sure you will stand in judgment before the living God. The godly will not 
evade judgment. However, well, before I get to that, it is my privilege, as I hope it is yours from time to time, to engage in conversation with folks whom I don't believe know Jesus. I hope you, as you fulfill your role as an ambassador of Christ, if you are a believer, are, are alert to opportunities to tell somebody about Jesus and just to have those conversations. And one of the first things that has to be established in that conversation is that you are, in fact, talking to a sinner. And I don't know what your experience has been, but in my experience, pretty much everybody I try to talk to about Jesus almost everybody will tell me they're a sinner. Only very, very rarely do I run into somebody who's so delusional as to say, well, I've, I'm, I'm not a sinner. I don't know whether it's lingering cultural echoes of some sort of biblical awareness or whether it's just a whole lot of good country music or something, but people know that they're sinners. They're just not bad ones. They're really not. They've, they've managed to avoid most of the biggies. And certainly, certainly judgment is scary for those who've done the biggies. Not for genuinely nice men and genuinely nice ladies like the people I encounter. They seem to, they seem to have a view of judgment that judgment is going to be comparing them to Hitler are comparing them to, I don't know, Saddam Hussein or the Ayatollah Khomeini or, or somebody who's in the paper as a, as a, I don't know, child molester or mass murderer. Those, those people should fear in the judgment, but not me. I mean, I'm a sinner and all, but I'm not a bad one. There's a massive problem with that. The standard by which you will be judged has not been left unclear. The standard by which you will be judged is not a matter on which God has been silent. And it's, it's not the worst behaved examples of humanity you can come up with. The standard whereby you will be judged was explained in that, that same Mars Hill message, that same um, Athens message, from Acts 17, in that message, Paul, urging the people of Athens to repent, says in Acts 17, 31, because he, the Lord, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The standard whereby we will be judged is the perfect, flawless righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And you and I are sunk. We have no hope of measuring up to the utter perfection of Christ. The standard whereby we will be judged. It's a hopeless thing. Except, except that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have 
everlasting life. If you're not familiar with Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, let me show you this, this marvelous, marvelous set of verses. And you, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, those of you who were sinners, who have come to faith in Christ, who were dead. He, God, made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The record against you has been nailed to the cross. All of your sin record has been obliterated and the record of Christ now stands in its place if you are in Christ, which is one more inescapable proof of the eternal security of the believer because the record is gone. Well, you say, well, what about my future sins? Which of your sins was not future when Jesus went to the cross? That question, I love you, but that question is not terribly intelligent. All of your sins were future sins when Jesus went to the cross. Don't you get hung up on your perspective of time. Your forgiveness is locked in God's perspective of time, and he has declared the believer innocent. You say, well, Brother Russell, I, I, I might still screw up. Well, except for that might, that's a really good sentence. Of course you will still sin. Of course you will still sin. And there will be, in the believer, a life of rolling repentance that keeps the, the, the friendship with God flowing freely as we live with a broken heart in love with the one who loved us enough to forgive us for sins we hadn't gotten around to committing yet. That is the stunning magnitude of that amazing grace we sometimes sing so flippantly about. Oh, his judgment on the believer will be the affirmation of the declaration of innocence that comes to all who will turn from their sin and trust the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Purchased on the cross, proven at the empty grave of Calvary, one day utterly vindicated at his return. But the apostate will stand in judgment for his ungodly works to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Wow, they must be really, really rotten people. Describe three times their works as ungodly. Well, remember, in context of Jude, they fit in quite nicely among the believers. If you're not watching for them carefully, following the encouragements of this book, you might miss them. And yet they're driven in ungodly ways. And not just their ungodly works, but their ungodly words. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's B and C on your outline their ungodly works, and their ungodly words. 
Verse 16 is interesting. Usually, or at least often in the New Testament, when you get to the, the list, the specific lists of specific sins that mark out the unredeemed, those lists often include some real biggies. You know, adultery, killing people, you know, stealing stuff. But remember in Jude, we're dealing with these disguised apostates. It is, it is um, appropriate to their agenda that they kind of sort of blend in as well as they can. I mean, let's face it, if somebody joined our church and then went around killing people, we'd probably spot them pretty quick. Somebody joined our church and went on an adulterous marauding through our body of Christ, their own marriage in shambles and them trying to wreck as many marriages as they could, I believe we'd catch them and call them out. If you're here this morning and the reason you came is that you've been out in the parking lot smashing car windows with a ball-peen hammer and cleaning out whatever people left in their console, well, by now we probably have video of it and we're probably on to you. No, no, not these. These clouds without water look like rain clouds. These reefs under the surface look like smooth sailing. These fruitless trees may give a whole lot of shade. They want very much to blend in. And yet they commit sin against which we are warned as a way to mark them out. And that leads us to Roman numeral four, the, the propriety, the appropriateness of the judgment that's coming for them on these sins. Letter A, on the sins of their mouths. These are grumblers, malcontents, later in the verse, loud mouth boasters. Apparently one can be those and fit in just fine in all kinds of church settings. shame. A grumbler or a malcontent is not somebody who has a disagreement. God's plan for the governance of the local church is elder-led congregationalism. And then a congregation comprised of people who are citizens of a fallen world, from time to time there's going to be good faith disagreement. From time to time, there's going to be, woo, I see that differently than you do. Can we talk? It's going to happen. And that's okay. It happens all the way up, up to the, the elder leadership of the church. I've shared with you before how, how profoundly I treasure my role as one of, at present, 16 elders of this body of Christ. It provides me with so many different graces from God. And one of the sweetest things that, that plural eldership um, provides it for, for, for me is the, is the freedom to get it wrong. I am, not, I am not burdened with infallibility, even in, my, even in my leadership role. I get to be all wet. 
because I'm surrounded. I've told you before, I'm not going to tell you on what issues. <laughs> Who knew? But I have, I have lost votes in elder meetings, and I'm glad because I got, I've got godly men drawn out by God the Holy Spirit from and through the voice of the congregation who can sit around the table with me and say, Brother Russell, we love you, but wow, do you ever see that wrong? Wow, are you ever on this specific point all wet? When I said that in the first service, when I talked about my being all wet, my wife did not say amen, but she did smile and nod. So it's okay to disagree from time to time, thinking Jesus-loving people will disagree from time to time, but someone who is locked into being a grumbler and a malcontent that is a wolf warning. It's a tear in their sheep costume through which their wolf fur is emerging and watch for it. Well, Brother Russell, I just want to be the devil's advocate. Why? Doesn't he have enough of those? The devil is not hurting for advocacy. <laughs> they're ungodly, ungodly mouths. Second, they're ungodly motives. They'll be judged for their ungodly motives. Here's what they're in it for. They're in it for themselves, following their own sinful desires. My goodness, we've said it often. It's, it's Christianity 101. The followers of Jesus Christ follow Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you're not following Jesus Christ, it's fair to conclude you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not a believer. These people do not passionately follow Jesus Christ. They follow their own sinful desires. They are driven by their own wish lists. And finally, their manipulation. The printed outline says motivation, but I want to suggest manipulation instead. They use other people for their own ungodly agenda. They show favoritism, the end of verse 16, they show favoritism to gain advantage. They're political players. They use people and ingratiate themselves to people in order that those people become more focused as followers of they themselves. May we never have a life group leader that's more interested in you being a part of their life group agenda than the agenda of faithfully walking with Jesus. May this church never have an elder up to and including in, in, in my office, an elder who's more interested in how thoroughly you're aligned with him than how thoroughly you are aligned with Jesus. May we be leery of those. Yes, within the boundaries of the kingdom. Brother David shared some names last week. And I know every time we would we'd call out a name, people get a little bit nervous. Would you like me to email me if, if us naming names of people who are dealing in error makes you nervous, and I will email you back a list of the names the Apostle Paul calls out in his letters of people who were spreading error in the church. Sometimes you name names, and I'm glad Brother David 
named names last week. You say, well, some of these people might have done some nice things. The apostle Paul told the churches of Galatia in Galatians 1 that if I ever come back to you with a gospel that's changed, if an angel pops up in your midst and is an angel for heaven's sake, they've just tweaked the gospel into something different, call them out and call them accursed. Don't talk about how wonderful they otherwise are, though they do in fact screw up the gospel. No, accursed, accursed, contend, fight tooth and nail for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Have zero tolerance for that which would purport to be the gospel, but is not. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of the word of God alone, for the glory of God and nothing else alone. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And if your own Christian experience is driven by your perception of the advantages that being a Christian is giving you in this life, check your heart. Examine yourself. What happens with those folks is eventually they figure out that their own agenda will never be satisfied and they literally flake away, becoming the apostate, the visible apostate. May those of us who know and love Jesus contend earnestly for the faith and share that faith as faithful ambassadors of Christ. And if you're here this morning outside of Christ, do not be so foolish as to have hope in anything other than the salvation which he offers if you will turn from your sin and trust him by faith. Have no hope in anything or anyone else.